Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast. We're back here on a Thursday for week 21. Uh, today's date, March 9th of 2023. I'm your host, Carson. Um, I'm doing the show a little bit earlier in the day, so unfortunately, uh, Justin's not able to join us for today's episode. But um, that being said, we're going to focus on our franchise focus on today's episode, as we normally do on Thursdays. This time, we'll be talking about the Indiana Pacers. Uh, with that, of course, we talk about the ter- the current team's uh, direction and, and outlook. Then we talk about a historic team from the franchise's history. And then we talk about an important or notable player from the franchise's history. Uh, so that will be our focus today, the Indiana Pacers. But before we do that, we need to take care of our game summaries from last night's action and the latest news across the league. Uh, so that being said, let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, starting with our game summaries, the first of these is uh, – the Atlanta Hawks victory in Washington against the Wizards, 122 to 120. Um, and it was actually a late rally uh, or third quarter rally rather to, to get the Hawks to lead and then help them win the game. They were down as much as 15 points in the third quarter. Uh, there were 10 lead changes throughout most of those coming uh, in the second half, uh, very close game, very exciting game. For the Wizards, they were led by Kristaps Porzingis, who had 43 points. He was the high scorer for the game for either team. Uh, five rebounds, five assists as well. Kuzma added 25 points, 10 rebounds, six assists. Very solid game for him as well. Bradley Beal, excuse me, Bradley Beal had 24 points and eight assists himself. Uh, meanwhile, for the Hawks, they managed to spread out their scoring just a little bit more. Uh, seven guys with 10 or more points. The leading scorer for them being Trey Young, 28 points and 10 assists uh, as the Hawks get a very nice win against a Southeast division rival in the Wizards. Helps their uh, play-in positioning a lot. Those two teams very close in the standings. Next, the Boston Celtics get back on track with a home win against the Portland Trailblazers, 115-93. to That ends their recent three-game losing streak. The Celtics led by as much as 27 points in this game, uh, controlled much of the game, not too much of a contest. For the Trailblazers, it was Damian Lillard again, 27 points, 8 assists, leading uh, the charge for them. They had a few guys with uh, 10 or more points, including Trendon Watford's 12 points, 10 rebounds coming off the bench. Uh, For the Celtics, though, Jason Tatum had 30 points, 7 rebounds. Uh, Derek White added 21 points, 7 assists. Uh, and the rest of their starters, as well as Sam Hauser off the bench, had double-figure scoring, so the Celtics get back in the winning column there. Next, the Cleveland Cavaliers won in Miami against the Heat, 104-100. to Close game. That's the, the Cavs' third straight victory, uh, and it was very back and forth through the first half. Cavs uh, built a lead in the second half, almost lost it towards the end of the fourth, but managed to hold on for the victory. For the Heat, it was Jimmy Butler's 28 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists that led their effort. 22 for Tyler Hero and 17 for Bam Adebayo. Meanwhile, for the Cavs, all five starters scored in double figures, the leading scorer being Darius Garland with 25 points and 7 assists. So the Cavs get a nice win against the Heat as they continue to solidify their playoff positioning in the Eastern Conference. Next, the New Orleans Pelicans with a much-needed win at home against the Dallas Mavericks, 113-106. to um, They had been struggling the last several weeks. Big win for them, especially against a Western Conference rival. That will certainly help them in their push for a potential play-in and playoff-type position. Uh, 
a few lead changes early, but once the Pelicans took the lead in the second quarter, they never relinquished that lead. Uh, almost got that word right today. For the Mavs, they were led by Kyrie Irving's 27 points. Luka Doncic had 15. He left early uh, with an injury. We'll have a little bit more on that in just a moment. Uh, 17 points for Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, 15 off the bench for Christian Wood. Um, you know, for the Pelicans, CJ McCollum, 32 points, five rebounds, five assists, led their charge. Uh, they had four other guys with 12 or more points. Nice balanced attack as the Pelicans get a very nice win against the Mavericks. Next, this was a surprising one to see, the Chicago Bulls winning in Denver against the Nuggets, uh, the best team in the Western Conference to this point in the season, and the Bulls win very handily, 117-96. to uh, Zach Levine has a nice game in this one. Back and forth through the first half, and then the Bulls really took charge in the second half and, and never really looked back from that point. For the Nuggets, they were at full strength. You know, Jokic had 18 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists, uh, 17 points for Aaron Gordon, 12 points for Michael Porter Jr., 11 for Jamal Murray. Uh, not a huge uh, scoring load for the Nuggets. Meanwhile, for the Bulls, Zach Levine, 29 points, 25 points, 15 rebounds for Nikola Vucevic. 17 points for DeMar DeRozan and 18 points off the bench for Patrick Williams as the Bulls get a very impressive win against the Nuggets uh, after they had been struggling lately themselves. Next, the Phoenix Suns win at home despite uh, Kevin Durant's absence. We'll have a little bit more on that as well in just a moment. But the Suns beat the Thunder in Phoenix 132-101. to uh, Not too much of a contest, uh, especially second half. The Suns really ran away with this one. Uh, leading by as much as 36 points in route to their victory here. The Thunder were led by uh, Lindy Waters, had 23 points off the bench to lead their scoring effort. Uh, only a few other guys had double-figure scoring, uh, Josh Giddy being one of them, the only starter with double-figure scoring. Just a tough night for the Thunder. You know, for the Suns, Devin Booker really stepped up, 44 points, four assists, three rebounds on great Pursue, uh, shooting percentages. Terrence Ross had 24 points off the bench. Chris Paul with 18 points, nine assists. Uh, DeAndre Ayton with 12 points as the Suns get a very uh, handy victory there against the Thunder. And finally, the LA Clippers win at home against the Toronto Raptors, 108 to 100. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George doing their uh, doing their part to help secure this win. Raptors controlled much of the first half, and then the Clippers took the lead at the beginning of the second and never looked back from there. For the Raptors, they had two 20-point scorers, Pascal Siakam and Scotty Barnes, each with 20. 18 points for OG Ananobi, 13 for Fred Van Vliet, and 14 off the bench for Chris Boucher. Uh, we'll have a little bit more to talk about with Van Vliet as well in a moment. Uh, 11 rebounds for Jakob Pertl to solidify their inside efforts. Uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George for the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard had 24 points, 12 rebounds. Paul George, 23 points, 17 points for Avica Zubats, and 14 off the bench for Terrence Mann as the Clippers get a, a fairly close victory against the Toronto Raptors. And that takes care of our game summaries from last night's action. Uh, let's go ahead and talk through our news real quick. We've mentioned a few of these things already very briefly, but firstly for the Phoenix Suns, Kevin Durant uh, was injured, unfortunately, in pregame warmups. Uh, from what I saw, it looked like he was he slipped, uh, maybe a bit of a wet surface there in Phoenix. Uh, he was slated to make his home debut for the Suns. Very unfortunately, he's not able to play that game. Um, 
So he's dealing now with left ankle soreness, left ankle injury. Uh, sprain, I think, is probably the more accurate uh, term for the injury that, you know, the specifics of the injury. Uh, again, he missed that home debut for them last night, but now just barely reported by uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN uh, mere, mere minutes ago. It looks like he is expected to miss two to three weeks for the Suns. Just a devastating blow, especially for a guy who had just barely come back uh, and was – you know, making his first runs with the Suns, uh, powering them to a very impressive first few games with him there. It looked like they were going to be the runaway team in the West. Now they're going to miss him for some more time, uh, just about the rest of the regular season, maybe a little bit. Uh, he'll play a little bit towards the end of the regular season, but just a tough one to tough one to see. Not not what anyone wants to see. Um, Another, I will say a lot of these news stories for today are injury related. So bear that in mind. Of course, we've talked Durant. Let's talk uh, the Mavericks with Luka Doncic. We, mess, we mentioned he didn't play that full game last night. Uh, he did get an MRI today on that thigh and the MRI is clean, which is good news. And it appears that Luka will not miss significant time with that injury. What I uh, suspect that means is probably within the next week or two. Uh, he should be back to full strength, hopefully. Um, he's he's dealing with some uh, some discomfort, some soreness, things of that nature, but not an injury itself. So uh, he should be back fairly soon, which is good to hear. Uh, short-term injury news for the Bucks: uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is out tonight versus the Brooklyn Nets, uh, dealing with hand soreness. So kind of similar to Luca, Giannis should hopefully be back pretty soon. Hopefully, not anything major. Um, Positive news for the Lakers, uh, D'Angelo Russell is going to return Friday versus the Toronto Raptors. Uh, he's missed the last week or two with a, an injury, and so he'll be back in the lineup. That's good for them, uh, especially as they're making this late-season push. Uh, really tough news out of Chicago. Lonzo Ball, who has not played at all this season, has not played since January of last year, dealing with uh, right knee injuries. Uh, Lonzo Ball is facing a, a very serious probability of needing a third surgery and additional uh, months of rehabilitation uh, following that surgery on that right knee that has kept him out for all of this time. Um, it's just tough. I, you know, obviously not as any kind of medical professional myself, I'm curious what has gone wrong or what the exact situation is that has uh, led to this situation where he's needing multiple surgeries, multiple months of rehabilitation, uh, you know, if he's just predisposed to this uh, or if it, if something has gone wrong, I, it's just tough to hear about, you know, he's a key player for them. And so that'll be, if that eats into next season, then that's going to really impact, I think how the bulls are building this team. Uh, so definitely tough news. Uh, some more tough news for a couple other teams for the Grizzlies. Uh, Steven Adams, who's been out with an injury, is expected to miss at least four more weeks with that injury, which runs through the end of the regular season uh, into the playoffs. Tough news. He's a, a big part of what they do, even if he's a quiet piece of that machine. So that's tough to hear. Um, and sort of similarly for the Lakers, another center, Mo Bamba, all, with an ankle injury, he's going to miss at least the next four weeks. So they're getting D'Angelo Russell back, but they're now losing a important rotational guy in their front court in Mo Bamba. So, so still tough situation for the Lakers, tough for those guys. Um, for everyone we've talked about, 
with these injury news and injury situations, uh, we wish them the best. All of these guys, we wish them the best in recovering from those injuries, getting back onto the court as soon as uh, they can and as soon as it's in their best interest long-term health-wise, as well as, you know, helping their teams out. We want them to be in the best, you know, long-term situation they can be. Hopefully they're able to play, you know, sooner rather than later, wishing them all the best as they recover from these injuries. Um, a couple more news stories. These not really injury related. Firstly, we mentioned Fred Van Vliet with the Raptors. Um, he had some uh, some heated words, if we want to phrase it that way, uh, in his post-game press conference uh, after their loss to the Clippers. And he directed much of it at NBA referee Ben Taylor. Um, apparently, he believes that Ben Taylor is um, not a great ref, if we want to say it that way and that Ben Taylor maybe has something personal against him, uh, against Red Van Bleet. Uh, very interesting. You know, he talked about, he believes that a lot of the refs in the NBA are genuinely good. They're doing their best. They're trying to, you know, help the integrity of, of the game and of the league. And then he thinks there are some refs that are, uh, just purposely being, um, difficult with players, difficult with teams. Um, you know, I I can see the argument, and there are some refs that have come up in conversations over this last season. Interestingly enough, they're kind of more, um, you know, fan chatter, uh, small circle chatter as far as refs having certain impacts on certain players or teams. Um, I forget the it's a different ref, not Ben Taylor, but there's another ref who's been tied to uh, by fans and maybe a bit of the tinfoil hat type stuff as far as the Celtics victories, helping them win in key calls and key games. Uh, I think that Celtics uh, Lakers game where LeBron uh, was fouled at the end, but it wasn't called and there was the overtime loss. The Celtics won in overtime. That was one of the big ones that they've latched onto as far as this particular referee helping the Celtics. Uh, And so that's something that's been discussed in fan circles. And uh, so now we have a player talking about a certain referee having uh, a grudge against him. This also isn't necessarily anything new to the NBA. Um, You know, we've had players like Rasheed Wallace in the past who have had uh, difficulties with referees. I don't believe Rasheed Wallace had much directed at a specific referee. Usually it was just the collective referees. But um, regardless, very interesting. Um, He said point blank, he doesn't care if he gets fined for that, which I imagine the NBA will find him, uh, you know, that they have to find him, especially because he basically asked for it with that, you know, kind of preempting it. But still, it's like, if you don't find him, then there's something really odd about that situation. But um, I don't know, he, he, he could be right, he could be wrong. We really don't know the the intricacies of, of these refs and specifically this ref uh, in particular. But yeah, just certainly worth noting, uh, that's kind of a rant. I, it's not very often that you hear a rant of that level post game from a player. I mean, it happens every so often, every you know, couple seasons, but um, certainly worth noting when it happens. Finally, uh, an update on the story that we talked about last time uh, with Sean Kemp, who had been arrested uh, in relation to a reported drive-by shooting. Uh, firstly, it looks like there might have been some potential misinformation in that original news story. Um, there was a gun and or guns involved uh, and cars, but it wasn't necessarily a drive-by shooting potentially. 
Um, additionally, it looks like um, this there's a good chance that this was a self-defense situation for Sean Kemp in terms of, um, from what I read, the very brief blurb uh, from one source, I forget the source, but said something along the lines of he uh, had some personal belongings stolen, potentially a phone and maybe some other things. He had been able to locate these belongings uh, in a vehicle in a, a, uh, at a mall, I think. And when he approached, uh, there was potential gunfire. He retaliated in self-defense. Uh, again, I, I don't remember the source, and that's a very uh, rough explanation of what potentially could have happened. Basically, the initial story, there's possibilities that there's, you know, mis misreporting, misinformation in there. We don't have a very clear picture, um, but uh, Sean Kemp has officially, he's been released from uh, jail after that arrest. And there's no charges uh, that will be filed at this time. So, um, yeah, and I, I need to apologize as far as um, yesterday, I kind of latched onto the story and maybe was a little bit quick to to condemn Sean Kemp, assuming the the guilt as far as he was arrested in relation to a charge. He must be guilty of something. And uh, that's disingenuous. You know, as, as always, it's... Um, innocent until proven guilty and so i uh, should have just given you straight facts didn't mean to really latch on to him potentially being uh you know guilty absolutely so uh at this moment he's been released there's no char charges filed there's a potential that he was uh doing he had a gun and used it in self-defense there's also the potential of the original story we don't really have concrete details at the time so the important thing is sean kemp's been released and there's probably going to be some further legal action on both sides relating to the story so that's that's the uh the update on that one and a quick apology uh but with that that takes care of our key news now we can jump into our franchise focus again we're talking about the uh indiana pacers this is the third straight team that got its start in the aba the american basketball association which ran from 1967 to 1976 um the other two, of course, being the Nets and the Nuggets. With the Pacers, if you talk about the ABA, um, they kind of were the the quintessential ABA team, not just for um, you know the style, the players, some of the all-time great ABA players, but they won the most championships. They won three ABA championships in a span of four years. Uh, they really were the dominant franchise, especially in the back half, uh, or in the middle portion, rather, of the ABA's lifespan. Uh, and so there's a lot of rich history there. We will talk about the ABA Pacers specifically as far as our notable player uh, with our team. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's talk about the modern day Pacers. Of course, you know, well past their integration into the NBA, their merger into the NBA, uh, coming up on 50 years in the NBA, which is uh, pretty remarkable. And their current direction, you know, they fit some of the teams like the jazz a little bit um, as far as they're in a rebuilding period, you know, uh, four or five years ago, they were in, they were in a consistent run of, you know, playoff contention post Paul George era, um, you know, 2017 through 2020, they were the playoff team with Oladipo as kind of their de facto main star Sabonis on the rise. He was an all-star there in Indiana. Uh, and then, you know, 
the last couple of years, they were one of the the uh, lowest performing. I mean, 21, they were bordering on a playoff type appearance, 34 and 38. I think they made the play in and then did not make the playoffs. Uh, 22 last season, they were 25 and 57. They were one of the worst records in the NBA. And uh, that was their first season with Rick Carlisle back in Indiana. It's an interesting note. He coached there from 2003 to 2007 in some of their most successful years in their franchise's history uh, or the tail end of their incredible run with Reggie Miller. And so he'd left there. He coached with the Mavericks and uh, of course won a championship with the Mavericks in 2011. And now after a long run with the Mavericks, he's back in Indiana as part of their rebuilding efforts. They've got Rick Carlisle, a very experienced, very successful head coach. And uh, they traded Sabonis to the Kings, got back Tyrese Halliburton. That's probably one of the trades that we'll look back on in NBA history or has a very good chance of being, you know, uh, a perfect trade for both teams. Uh, Sabonis has been a tremendous fit alongside Darren Fox for the Sacramento Kings. And the Pacers have gotten themselves a, you know, potential top three point guard in the NBA in the near future. He's certainly top 10 right now, maybe even top five, as far as you want to talk about pure point guards, uh, ability to distribute the ball. He's leading the league in assists or is one of the league leader in assists. Um, And so that's a great thing for them. And that's really where this rebuild kind of situation starts. Um, Currently 12th in the East, not dead last. So they're starting to build a touch of that momentum. Um, But really it starts with Halliburton. He's, uh, in his second year, or sorry, in his third year in the NBA, he's only 22 years old. So they've got a point guard with great size, great scoring ability, along with the the, the ball handling, uh, you know, the passing. He can be, he's defensively solid. So he's going to lead that show for them. And I think that's a great pickup. I really, to be honest, I wasn't ultra familiar with Halliburton, with the Kings, and didn't understand why people were so incredulous that the Kings would trade him for Sabonis. And then seeing his run here with the Pacers, I understand what they were talking about as far as his abilities as a point guard Um, around him. They've got a touch of veteran talent this season. That's, you know, uh, helping complete the roster, but they've got a lot of young guys uh, as well who are giving, you know, have the chance to grow with this young Pacers squad. Uh, Buddy Heald's a little bit more experienced. He's in his seventh season. Um, he's fairly young. Uh, he could be a part of this, you know, team going forward. He might be a trade piece. I'd say it's kind of 50-50 there, but he's been productive for the Pacers. One of the be- un- more underrated three-point shooters of the last decade. Uh, Matherin, the rookie, good size, uh, you know, shooting guard, uh, sixth man this season. He has a lot of potential as does Chris Duarte, similar size in his second year. Uh, you know, so they've got great guard play. They have TJ McConnell, who's, you know, a little bit older as far as their core, but he's a tremendous backup point guard, maybe the best backup point guard in the NBA, certainly a contender. Um, they've locked down miles Turner long-term as their starting center. So that locks, locks that in. They've got their guard rotation, Probably the next step for them is their forward spot. Um, you know, I even forgot to mention the other rookie, Andrew Nemhard, the other shooting guard. He's He's been uh, promising. And so right now they're playing Buddy Heald at the small forward, which isn't a bad idea, but it 
I'm not sure that that long term is going to uh, always work in the modern NBA. Um, and so I'd say that's probably their next point of emphasis is finding that um, forward strength and depth. Um, I mean, their center, their backup center, Isaiah Jackson, I really like him and what he's brought to the Pacers in his his role off the bench. So it's just those forward spots. You know, they've got starting center, backup center. They've got their point guards and they've got their shooting guards and a bit of that wing help. Those guys that can maybe play the, the small forward, but then small forward, power forward. You know, they have O'Shea Brissett, Jalen Smith, Aaron Neesmith, Jordan Noir, and James Johnson. Those are your forwards, really. And none of those guys are terrible. They're all solid rotational guys, um, but they're all probably playing a step up from where you would kind of like them to play at this point in any of their careers. Um, you know, Neesmith and uh, Nawara playing, you know, closer to starting type minutes when they sh- should be closer to, you know, uh, ninth, tenth man type minutes, in my opinion. And so that's really where I think they need to figure out that starting forward spot. So that that's kind of, you know, outlook. It's, it's all as far as their focus, what their team is doing. It's all building for the future. And I don't think anyone would really disagree with that. So they've got a lot of great pieces. They need to figure out that forward spot. Small forward, power forward, those small those forward positions, the depth. That's the big question mark for the Pacers going forward as they continue the building effort uh, in my mind. But they've, you know, they're in the Eastern Conference. Um, if they can get that locked in and then Rick Carlisle, he's getting more acclimated to his personnel and, you know, this team working with Kevin Pritchard, the executive. Uh, I think within a couple of years, they should be back in this playoff picture as long as they get those uh, you know, forward positions figured out. And then the question becomes, what does it take to elevate the Spacers team from just another playoff team in the East, you know, from being back in the playoffs like they were, uh, you know, five years ago to then that next step of being where they were about 10 years ago as a legitimate contender in the East. So that's kind of the outlook for the Pacers. But you're in a good – as a Pacers fan, I'd say you're in a good spot um, or, you know, from the perspective of the Pacers fan – what I think, you know, Pacers fans should be feeling. Uh, I enjoy the Pacers. Of course, my, the Jazz are my favorite team. But uh, if, if if I'm a Pacers fan, I think I'm feeling pretty good as far as the future. Um, of course, you always want to be uh, contending if you're a fan. And so that element, you know, you're kind of disappointed there. But overall, I think the Pacers are heading in a good direction. Halliburton's got some true star potential for him uh, going for him. And I think they're in a, a pretty good spot as a team. Um we talked about the contention of the Pacers. They're a franchise that on the whole of their NBA run, I'd say they've been a uh, playoff team more often than not. And they had a stretch from, you know, mid nineties to mid two thousands where they were legitimate Eastern conference contenders uh, who just happened to be there at the same time as the, the Michael Jordan bulls that limited them in the nineties and then in the 2000s, they had some interesting roadblocks there. And I, as far as our historic team, I'll just come out right with the, the uh, you know, give you the team right out here, the 2003-2004 Indiana Pacers. That's the team we're going to talk about. Um, you know, a lot of these Pacers teams gets, get pretty regularly talked about in, in NBA fan circles. and But I figured this one's worth talking about. This was Rick Carlisle's first year. 
coaching the Indiana Pacers after he had coached the Detroit Pistons before this. Um, so a, a throwback team, but it's the same head coach, which is interesting in itself. But they were 60 and 20, 61 and 21 this season, first in the Central Division. I believe they would have been first in the Eastern Conference. Yes, best record in the East. This was a team that had every possibility to win the championship that season, especially considering who would make it out of the West. The 04 Lakers, it was still Phil Jackson's Lakers, but they were on the downturn. There was the infighting. There was the Kobe Bryant situation. Uh, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. But there was, you know, they had the quote-unquote super team of Gary Payton and Carl Malone joining Kobe and Shaq, but uh, Payton was just a touch underwhelming in that role, I'd say, and Carl Malone was productive for his age, but was getting older. And then infighting along with that, uh, the depth wasn't stellar. And so the winner of the East had a very good chance of beating the Lakers, whether people really knew it at the time or not. And so it was either going to be, it came down to that conference finals, the Eastern Conference Finals, which was the Indiana Pacers versus the Detroit Pistons. And the Pistons had been a, a good team in the East for a few years now, but or for a few years at that point. But I don't know if people really knew that they would be the dominant Eastern team that they would be in, you know, over the next few years following that season that they won the title in 04. So the Pistons win that series, four games to Pacers lose. And, um, the following season, they had every chance to re- be right back in contention. Uh, but 2004, 2005, early in the season, they have the Malice at the Palace, Pistons, Pacers, Brawl, R- Ron Artest is, uh, Ron Artest at the time uh, is was suspended through the rest of the season. And that really cratered their title hopes. And that was Reggie Miller's last season. Uh, and so that was kind of the end of it. And so looking at this 04 team, this was the last real true shot. You know, you forget the what ifs of Ron Artest and Malice at the Palace. We have this team that it was a complete team and there was no what ifs as far as, you know, this player being available. Uh, you know, what happens if this and this happens? It's just simply, you know, if they could have beat the Pistons they probably could have won the championship. It's a little bit more simple of a what-if type equation. Um, we've talked a lot about those outside circumstances. Let's talk through the team itself. Reggie Miller in his, um, oh, what season? Probably, you know, 16th, 17th type of season. He had been in the NBA a long time, long-time veteran. Uh, yeah, it was the 17th season in the NBA. Uh, not a star at that point by any means, but he was productive still. I mean – 10 points a game, three assists, two rebounds, uh, 40% from three-point range, four four three-pointers attempted per game. Um, He was a starting shooting guard. He didn't need to be a star because he had stars alongside him, uh, and this was the best co-stars he had had, really, uh, since, I guess, the 90s. You know, Mark Jackson was great in the 90s. Rick Smith was solid. But in this team, he has Ron Artest in his – Prime, 18 points, five rebounds, four assists, two steals. Defensive player of the year this season. Alongside him at the power forward, Jermaine O'Neal. 20 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, two and a half blocks. Great power forward, could play center if he needed him to. 
Uh, Al Harrington as your sixth man, small forward or power forward, uh, versatile game there. Jamal Tinsley's the point guard, solid point guard, about eight points, six assists, one and a half steals. Um, you know, just did everything he needed to. Good little shooter. Jeff Foster starting at center, just a stout center that played alongside uh, Jermaine O'Neal. The bench depth is decent. Kenny Anderson, veteran point guard alongside Anthony Johnson, uh, younger point guard. Uh, Fred Jones, former dunk contest champion. Austin Crozier, a decent, you know, kind of clone of Jeff Foster in some ways, but he could stretch the floor a little bit, uh, unlike Foster. Uh, and that was really the extent of their bench. They did have Scott Pollard, too, in his younger years. Uh, James Jones lurking very deep on the bench, but it was a deep team. They had some, you know, great depth. The the rotation was solid, you know, scoring and especially defense. And that's really the the where this team began and ended was the defensive end of the floor. As far as um, the Eastern Conference in the early two thousands was predicated on defense. These were low scoring games. Um, you had to be, you know they were tough teams to play against, especially Pacers and Pistons. And that's what that conference finals came down to gritty defensive series. And, uh, and that's why, again, whether it was Pacers or Pistons, whoever faced the Lakers in that title game or that title series, that finals was probably going to win the championship because they could defensively impose their will against the Lakers. Um, But overall, yeah, great team. Uh, you know, another exercise in what if they had been able to beat the Pistons and win that championship. Um, the Pacers will win an NBA championship someday, uh, as will the Jazz. I think the Jazz will win it someday too. But, um, you know, both teams have incredible histories. But uh, this is a team that just came so close but wasn't able to quite pull it off. Um, when it comes to our notable historic player, we're going with uh, – a player who Reggie Miller, the Pacers all-time greatest player, you could say, has said is the greatest player to never play in the NBA. And that is Roger Brown, an ABA legend and a unanimous pick for the ABA's all-time team. We're talking about the all-time greatest players from the nine seasons of the ABA. He was a unanimous selection to that team alongside guys like Julius Irving and Mel Daniels. Uh, and he was right there in that mix. That's kind of an interesting story. In uh, college, he played at the University of Dayton um, and was, uh, or he, excuse me, signed to play for the University of Dayton. But right after, uh, he had been banned from the uh, NCAA and the NBA. He was banned from both college and the pros. When uh, during high school, it was revealed that he, alongside Connie Hawkins, they had been associated with Jack Molinas, who was a a point shaver. Uh, So there was some betting scandals there. He Brown himself was never accused of the point shaving, uh, never was really involved other than simply knowing Jack Molinas and having met him. And outright, okay, you're banned from the NCAA, you're banned from the NBA. And so... It looks like your career is over, right? Uh, that's just a, a tough situation. So so the band's there. He plays basketball after a great high school career, uh, you know, plays in some Dayton amateur leagues, uh, you know, some, some rec leagues, things like that. And in 1967, he's saved by the formation of the American Basketball Association. The ABA is formed. It's a new league. They're 
they don't have any ban in place on him. So he signs with the Indiana Pacers of that league. And he was the first ever player the Pacers signed when they were formed. Consequently, he would go on in his uh, eight-year ABA career. He did not play the last year of the ABA. But over that time, he played with the Pacers primarily. His last season was split between the Memphis Sounds, the Utah Stars, and went back to the Indiana Pacers at the end of the season for their playoff run that season. Over that time, he was a four-time ABA All-Star, a three-time champion, all three of those champion, uh, all three of those with the Indiana Pacers. There are three titles in the ABA, three-time All-ABA. Um, in his best seasons, he had a run from 1968 to 1971, three seasons through there, averaged about 21.5 points per game, seven rebounds, four and a half assists. Um, it's important to remember that the ABA also had the three-point line well before the NBA did. During his whole career, he averaged just about 32% from three, which for that era and that early in the three-point line's existence, you got to say it's pretty decent. You know, not stellar, but pretty decent. He was a scorer, uh, touch of shooting there, but mainly a scorer, you know, could score inside, good mid-range type shooter. Um, And especially in the playoffs, he really elevated his play. You look at 1969 and 1970s postseasons, 1970 being their first championship run. Uh, Across those two playoffs, he averaged nearly 28 points per game, nine rebounds, four and a half assists. And his percentages even went up a little bit. It's three-point percentage up to about 34%. Especially 1970, 28 points, 10 rebounds, 35% from three. Uh, You know, locked in in the playoffs, playing about 46 minutes a game, uh, leading the Pacers, you know, really kind of the driving force of that 70, 1970 championship team alongside, uh, you know, Mel Daniels and Bob Nedelicki inside getting the rebounds, adding some, tertiary, you know, secondary scoring, tertiary scoring. Uh, but Roger Brown was the scoring leader and he helped lead that team to that first championship. Um, again, he was a, a part of those other titles, a little bit more of a, a secondary supportive role those times alongside Mel Daniels and later, George McGinnis had joined those teams. Uh, his play declined a little bit over time and uh, ended up uh, finishing up his career in 1975. Uh, interestingly enough, the NBA did lift the ban on him uh, in, um, let's see, was it 19? Yeah, it, probably around that time. doesn't say a specific year, but the NBA reinstated Brown. They lift the ban, but he chose to not play in the NBA. Um and again, he was unanimously selected to the ABA's all-time team. He's also one of four players alongside Reggie Miller, George McGinnis, and Mel Daniels to have his his jersey retired by the Pacers, number 35. Um, at the uh, in February 13th, uh, February of 2013, excuse me, he was also uh, a direct inductee to join the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame, having been selected by the ABA committee of the Hall of Fame and was inducted in September of 2013. So a great end to his kind of basketball story. He ends up in the Hall of Fame. Uh, unfortunately, he had long passed away at that, long since passed away at that point, excuse me. Um, during his basketball career, he actually served as a Republican on the Indianapolis City uh, slash County Council for four years. Interesting that he did that during his career. I, I read this before doing the show. I thought that that was post-playing career, but he did it during his basketball career. Um, he had seven children, 
Uh, and then unfortunately later in the, in 96 was diagnosed with colon cancer and passed away the following year. Um, so, you know, sad that he was, we lost him that soon. He was only 54 years old, but, uh, he passed away in Indian, in Indianapolis. He made a home in Indiana and he truly is one of the foundational members to the Pacers. It's hard to overstate his importance to the Indiana Pacers franchise and to the ABA as a whole. One of the founding players and most important players in that league helped, you know, bring that league to relevance, um, which of course later led to their merger into the NBA. And again, hard to, hard to say much more, you know, hard to overstate his importance as far as the Pacers franchise as a whole, a tremendous player and tremendous part of the Pacers history. Uh, That being said, that takes care of our franchise focus for the Indiana Pacers. Let's go and wrap things up with our this day in history fact for today. Going back to 1960, all the way back to 1960, uh, March 9th of 1960, the Boston Celtics defeated the New York Knicks 148 to 128 at Boston Garden, giving the Celtics their 59th win of the season, which topped the previous NBA high for wins in a season by seven. The Celtics also set NBA records during that 1959 to 1960 season for the most field goals made per game, 49.9, and field goal attempts per game, 119.6, as well as the most rebounds per game, 71.5. All three records still stand more than 40 years later. So this was written a little while ago. I would think those records still stand, especially the rebounds per game. Um, field goal attempts per game, I'm sure that stands as well. Field goals made, uh, it might be close, although the the highest pace of play besides, you know, some of those types of teams would have been in the 80s. So I'm willing to bet those records still stand, uh, you know, 60 plus years later now at this point. So, um, yeah, great Celtics teams, um, a long stretch of success. At one point, they won eight straight titles in the, you know, late fifties, early sixties, early to mid sixties. Yeah. Tremendous stuff that takes care of our, this day in history fact for you. And that takes care of our show for today. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, If you want to check out our Instagram page, that's crossover across time, all one word on Instagram. We have content from the show posted there as well as content from across the NBA. We do our best to share content from the NBA. Um, Tomorrow's show we'll have our, week uh weekday wrap-up type show as far as tonight's game summaries uh key news and uh, some previews game previews going into the weekend we will also have uh some bonus franchise focus episodes once again on saturday those will be for the new orleans pelicans and the detroit pistons so definitely tune in for those Um, with that thank you again for listening and we'll be back with you tomorrow